0: Everyone, this is the Change Alchemist, a future of work podcast. I'm your host, Shobhana Vishwanathan, and today's guest is Jeffrey Moore. Enjoy this episode, and you can always catch earlier episodes at thechangealchemist.com. You can find me on Twitter at Shobana V, that's S H O B H A N A V, or you can reach me also. On my website at thechangealchemist.com. Today we have Jeffrey Moore on the Change Alchemist podcast. Jeffrey Moore needs no introduction. He's one of my heroes, both a business hero and a marketing hero. He's an author, speaker, and advisor. He splits his time consulting between startup companies. He's also a venture partner at Wildcat Venture Partners, and he's advised both startups as well as large corporations like Salesforce, Microsoft, Autodesk, Google, Splunk, and and the list goes on. Jeffrey Moore's work has focused on the market dynamics surrounding disruptive innovations, And in his first book, Crossing the Chasm, which I'm sure all of the readers on this podcast have either read or uh, reread. You've had three editions so far. You focus in your uh, book on the challenges startup companies face, transitioning from early adoption to mainstream customers. So I think I'll, I'll pause there. I'd love to talk about your journey in Silicon Valley. You started out as a literature major. You went to Stanford University and then you did a master's in the University of Washington. You you even taught. So maybe you could talk about some of those early influences and how you moved into technology.
1: Okay, so thank you. Yeah, I was I want, my career ambition was to be an English professor. And so I I went to I was an English major and undergraduate, I got a master's and a PhD in English literature. I specialized in medieval and renaissance literature, so not particularly relevant to the high-tech sector at the the surface anyway. And I did teach for four years in a small liberal arts college in Michigan, Olivet College. Marie is, however, from Palo Alto. We're an interracial couple. She's Filipino. I'm white. And so Michigan was not a good fit for us in the 70s. It was just a little bit of a challenge. So we came back to the Bay Area, but there were no jobs in academics, so I just had to get a job someplace else. And I was lucky enough to get a job in a software company as a training director. And uh, that led to me as I got more and more involved, I got more interested in the sales and marketing side. I didn't think I was going to be a coder. So if you didn't make it, you probably ought to sell it was my thinking there. And I spent 10 years with three different companies and I learned a ton. I was, I was never a very successful salesperson. I was terrific at opening. I wasn't very good at closing. And so someone along the line, said, well, that sounds more like marketing than sales. Mm-hmm. And when I got into marketing, I joined a, a company called Regis McKenna, which was the sort of premier high-tech PR agency of that era. And that was just an invaluable experience for me. I mean, as soon as I got there, it was like I was home. And, and that's where I was able to work with enough companies to see the patterns that led to re- writing Crossing the Chasm, which was my first book. And it was, it was all about those challenges. And we were living them at Regis McKenna every day with our clients. And so it was very helpful.
0: So you wrote Crossing the Chasm 25 years ago, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, let's see. It came out in 1990. So maybe 20, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 30 years ago.
0: And it's a bestseller and I've read it. Yeah, it's
1: actually actually sold over a million copies over the years. It's been, it just, I think that the framework has just really held up. It's particularly strong. At helping B 2 B and B to B to C companies, it's not really a consumer marketing book. It's much more of a business to business marketing book. Um, but the frameworks have held up very well, and I've had to re- I've had to uh, revise it twice because the examples didn't hold up. The companies change so fast in high tech that about every ten years you got to go, okay, got to have a whole new cast of characters. But I didn't actually rewrite any of the logic of the book. I just wrote, rewrote the examples.
0: Um, good. So did you think when you wrote it that we would still be reading it and uh, CEOs would still be uh, getting words of wisdom from you at th- this point?
1: You know, no, when I wrote it, for, when I wrote it, I wasn't even a partner at Regis McKenna, I was just a principal. I was just trying to write kind of a playbook for product m- managers who were who had these products. And, and they, sometimes they were like in the middle of the corporation. They weren't the vice president or the CEO, but they owned a product. And it was a disruptive innovation. It was a disruptive technology. And they kept on having this situation where they have these early successes and these great customers, and they go, wow, this is it. We, we've made it. It's, it's done. And they pour on the gas and the big marketing programs, hire a bunch of salespeople, and then boom, and they fall on their face. And so after a while, so that hurts. Uh, and, and so what's going on here? And so the pattern of, of the chasm and this whole notion of early adopters versus the early majority, and how different they really are. And what what it takes to win with one is so different from what it takes to win with the other. So that change in culture and focus that's required to cross the chasm, it was easy for me to see it, because I was going from company to company. When I was actually before that, in those three companies I was in before I became a marketing consultant, I actually took products into the chasm and none out. I mean, because I, I thought it was my fault. In fact, we all thought it was our fault. And so part of the chasm, I think, was about uh, just getting redeemed it was sort of like okay, we probably could have done better but there's something structural going on here. it's just not, not, it's not that we're all bozos so it, was, it felt good.
0: It's fabulous. The crossing the chasm is primarily targeted at startups, right?
1: You yes, would- that's right. yeah the, the idea behind crossing the chasm is nobody's heard of you. you have a really exciting you're venture capitalist maybe they've heard of your venture capitalist, but they haven't heard of you and, uh, and you've you got something incredibly exciting. And the early market, the people that are technology enthusiasts and visionaries who make up what we call the early market, and they both get you. In they, they fact, they're excited by you. They're, they gravitate toward you. They believe what you believe. They think this is the next big thing, or at least could be, and they want in on it. And so that early market is emotionally fulfilling because everybody's on the same side. And, and so you can get some early wins that make you think, I'm master of the universe, Uh, But it's actually with a very specialized cohort. And so as soon as you go outside of that little bubble and wander out into the pragmatic real world, then you have a a series of lessons to learn.
0: And then you talk about the tornado, which is when you uh, hit the mass majority.
1: Yeah, so it's very interesting. So the people who are not in the early market, the people who they call the early majority, we call them the pragmatists, the way they make buying decisions is they say, look, I'm not an expert in this. The the, the PowerPoint looks good, the demo looks fabulous. We know that's not always the the whole story. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna talk to my peers and I'm gonna ask them, have you tried this? And if I say, if they say, not yet, I'll say, okay, I'll I'll wait too. And that's what creates the chasm. The chasm is just the pragmatist saying, I'm interested. I'd like to learn more. I might even pilot it in some tiny little application, but it's too soon for me to make a commitment. I have a career and I, I want to protect the career. So that's the chasm. The tornado is the it's just flipping that. Now all of a sudden you have the fear of moving out, the FOMO thing, right? Fear of missing out. So you say you're doing it, you're doing it. Oh my gosh, I got to do it too. And at that point, everybody rushes into the market and there's all of a sudden everybody has budget for the new category and everybody's talking about who you're going to buy. And so and that we call that the tornado because all of a sudden the category inflates so fast that anybody in the category gets a huge lift.
0: Do you feel like COVID and the recent uh, events have actually accelerated innovation in the Valley? Or do you feel like we're at a, in a holding pattern? What are your thoughts on how the pandemic has impacted innovation?
1: It's, it, I think the biggest thing, and I think I see this, I hear this a lot from the companies I consult with as well as the CIOs I spend time with, What the pandemic has done more than anything else is accelerated digital transformation in the customer base because everybody has to work from home. uh, A lot of these things, which they were, they had a five year plan for became a five month plan. And so anybody in the Valley who's part of the digital transformation sort of solution set, their business has actually accelerated dramatically. Now, if you're not, if you're part of clean energy or you're part of biotech or you're part of something else, it maybe it went the other way. So it's not, it's, I don't think it's been even, but I do think that the, and particularly, I think what COVID has shown us because of the pressure on the healthcare system, it's shown us with telemedicine. And then of course, the fact that we're trying to do education from home, so remote learning, that two things it showed us over and over again, one is this medium, we can do a lot with virtual stuff that we didn't know. And two, it's not complete solution if you have any kids who are trying to learn through remote education it's not a complete solution and same thing with telemedicine it's not but the fact that it could be as powerful as it can be i think has been a wake-up call for everybody
0: so i think which kind of leads to our your concept of the whole product right you can have a product but then you have to look at the Maybe you could talk a little bit about the whole product because that's a beautiful concept.
1: And it, So it, it, it's so relevant to both medicine and education. Let's do education because I, I think everybody here either has kids or knows people or have grandkids or whatever. Right. School. Mm-hmm. So you look at something like Zoom or, or any of the other video things, you say great product, just great product. But does the teacher have lessons plans for it? Mm-hmm. Who's going to supervise it? Ch- what do you do when a child's crying? How how do you, you know, what's playtime supposed to be about? And, And the whole product would be something that we will probably have not for another year or two, but we're hoping as fast as possible. What's the complete curriculum day look like? What are all the tools besides video that you can use to accelerate education or keep the child on the thing? And the same thing would be with medicine. So, you know, the whole, like you want to say, if we're having virtual medicine, well, Jeffrey's going to take care of himself at home. Who's going to monitor his pulse? Well, you have a Fitbit. Okay. And then then who's going to to read the Fitbit? And and again, as you look at the whole product, what you're trying to say in every case is, if you're going to achieve the objective of the purchase, what besides the product is necessary in order to do it? If I'm going to educate the child, what besides the video conference with a teacher is required? If I'm going to keep Jeffrey healthy, what besides the video check-ins is going to be required? That was the whole product.
0: Yeah, and then you get into, hey, which is the core and what's the context? And then...
1: That's a great... That core context, it became so important because... Core, you know, in a whole product, there's lots of stuff, but not all, the, the part that is that the, we call core is the part that's differentiating, the part that makes the difference. So in this, in the case of the working from home, I think there's no question that Zoom is core, or WebEx, or Google Hangouts, or Teams, or whatever you want to use, but the video conferencing is core. But there's all this other stuff, and for Eric Yuan at Zoom, for example, he should just focus on the video, but his ecosystem of partners can focus on the, what we call the context. And so the way we work with core and context, and we're particularly, it's important, particularly important for startups who have very limited resources, you wanna spend as much of your resources on core as you can to be as differentiated as you possibly could be. And you wanna to leave to the partner ecosystem as much of the context as you can, so that because that's on their balance sheet, not yours. The key to that, of course, is that the partners have to wanna to work with you and so what you realize, and this is where we got into this whole thing and Crossing the Chasm about focus on a single use case in a single market, because we want to be able to show that partner ecosystem is, hey, I'm the leader. And I'm not the leader everywhere, but in this market, in this geography, with this use case, I'm the leader. And then the partners go, oh, then we'll work with you. And that's what starts your ecosystem. And that if until you get an ecosystem, you're like a hermit crab without a shell. You, 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 you need the whole thing.
0: I know part of part of why book is, books have been so successful is I think you bring these real world analogies to a business um, setting. And I, I find that fascinating.
1: Well, that's back to my, I think, maybe a little bit of the English literature major stuff. <laughs>
0: You talked a lot about innovation Jeffrey and you've done work with both startups and large companies and one of the things you've said is the most common misunderstanding of disruptive innovation is to overestimate their impact in the short term and underestimate it in the long term and another misunderstanding is to associate disruptive with good so maybe you could talk about innovation and the frameworks people should use while looking at disruptive and sustaining innovation
1: yeah actually that first quote I think it might be Bill Gates or someone but it, it wasn't me but it, it's a, a very important and it's true over and over again we do we overestimate it in the, the in the short term which creates bubbles but we underestimate it in the long term which creates revolutions but and, and I would say that yeah this I think Silicon Valley in particular because we tend to be technological enthusiasts we tend to be early adopters we tend to think that the disruptive innovations is always good and it's the good stuff and people who are pragmatists or even, God forbid, conservatives in terms of adopting technology, they must lack IQ and they must, you know, obviously we're the smart people and they're not. That's just baloney. It's just completely wrong. So disruptive innovation is particularly important when the current status quo is holding us back. Mm-hmm. So in other words, for a lot of places, the status quo is a huge asset. The fact that we have highways, they're not holding us back. We can drive to where we want to go. But occasionally you get to a situation where you go, well, yeah, but toll roads in the East is holding us back. So how can we figure? And so we took technology and said, well, what if you put a little device in your car and you could just drive right through? Mm-hmm. Ah, good, okay. So that was a disruptive innovation and it, 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 it put some toll takers out of work. You know, I mean, I mean and it, it, that was bad, but it, but it clearly was, was a good thing. And so I think sustaining innovation and disruptive innovation it, 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 the, the sustaining innovation for most of the time is the right bet because you don't want to disrupt all the time or you won't get anything done. You want to disrupt and then you want to sustain, 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 uh-oh, trap, okay, disrupt. And, and, I, and I think in Silicon Valley, because we like disruptive innovation, we also have put a premium on leadership, which is what you need when you're disrupting. And we tend to not put enough of premium on management, which is what you need when you're sustaining so when you're running a core business in a sustaining way, you want good management. Tim Cook, right? When you're disrupting, you want Steve Jobs. <laughs> but, but Steve Jobs would not do Tim Cook's job very well. I mean, in other words, it's important to respect both
0: jobs. So Disruptive innovation can happen in large companies too. If you look at Microsoft moving to the cloud, they've moved their Office 365, which was on-prem, Although they had to cannibalize, I think they did it. Can you give some examples where it could be useful?
1: This is important. And this is actually, my latest book is called Zone to Win. Uh It's about the same market development challenges that Crossing the Chasm and Inside the Tornado were about. But instead of looking at it from the perspective of a startup, it's looking at it from the perspective of a public company. And the big difference there is that startups are typically funded by venture capital and other forms of private equity, who are willing to lose money in the short term in order to make a bigger bet for the long term. And that's the way, that's the whole economics of venture capital. That's not true of public corporations. Public shareholders are not willing to lose money in the short term in order to make money for the long term. And so large companies have a big challenge. They know they need to innovate, they start innovating, they get, and, and initially it works well because they've got bright people. It's not that they don't know how to innovate, but at some point you've got to make this, add this uh, investment commitment And it makes your performance measures all go down, not up. And you have to report your performance every quarter in the stock market. And so your uh, investors get restless, your board of directors gets restless. Uh, You get halfway into these things and they say, look, this is not, you got to stop. And so they do, they stop or they sideline it or whatever, which is incredibly destructive. The most destructive thing you can do to a company is start a disruption, get halfway in and quit. You're much better off never going. It, 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 but it, so the book Zone to Win starts with 56 companies, iconic companies in tech, crushed it the first time, do not exist today because because every time they tried to get that catch that second wave, they couldn't. So what the book's about is saying, okay, enough's enough. H- how do we crack this code? And it talks about very understanding that. There are various zones of interest inside a corporation. There are three that are permanent and one that's temporary. And each has its own management model. And you can't, use, you, you can't use one zone's management model to evaluate the progress or the work of another zone. And so the two zones that all public companies have all the time, we call the performance zone, which is their sales and product revenues, and the productivity zone, which is all of their cost center functions, finance, HR, IT, legal. It's ninety-five percent of the people in any large company are either in the performance zone or the productivity zone. The incubation zone, which is where you work with the next generation disruptive stuff, it what we've just learned about that is in the twentieth century, big companies had a laboratory model for that: Bell Labs, IBM Labs, Xerox Park. That didn't work. The, the reason it didn't work was great technology. The Macintosh came out of Xerox Park, but couldn't get it to market because the, the distance between the lab and the performance zone, is just, it's too big. Mm-hmm. So what we've learned in the 21st century is you gotta run the incubation zone the way a venture capital fund runs their businesses. Not, they, you're not a venture capitalist, and you're not trying to make venture capital returns, but you fund these things like their startups, you give them a, an entire team, not just engineers, they have salespeople, they have, but you keep it small. And you, and by the way, you have very restricted distribution. None of their products can be sold in the performance zone. They all have to be sold by special, in Special sales teams in the incubation zone to a very specific set of customers who have been told this is not our normal contract. We, the, this is not our normal quality. This is next generation stuff. So understand you're working with you're working with the next generation here, and you can do that. And, and, and just putting that zone in place is a big step up. And then the other thing is the transformation zone. That's the one that's temporary, and that's if you say, okay, guys, we have to go. Now, in the case of Microsoft, you mentioned and this is true of most large companies, Microsoft didn't voluntarily go to the cloud. Microsoft was crushing it. with, and Microsoft had no reason to change at all. But what happened was Amazon showed up and all of a sudden the back office software business, which is what Satya Nadella was running, he realized we're not going to have a back office software business if the world goes to the cloud because people won't buy our software, they'll buy whatever the cloud guy gives them. And then the people running Office, and at the time I got there, it was a guy named Chi Lu. Satya said to Chi, look, mobile first, cloud first, you you gotta get Office into this new world. And so that was Office 365. And then Windows never got there. By the time it came to do Windows, the mobile operating system was, so between iOS and Android, Windows had 20% of the edge instead of 90%. So what what Microsoft taught, taught me, is that most companies go through a transformation under threat not because which we always like to write about look what Jeff Bezos did or look what Reed Hastings did or look what Larry Ellison did or whatever yes there are these amazing people who voluntarily disrupt themselves but that is an incredible exception the much more common is if I don't jump on this bandwagon I'm out of business and even that but even then you have to go down before you go up and the, that Microsoft had the courage of its convictions and, and Adobe when they had, when the cloud had the courage of their convictions and that's what it takes.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting that the big companies are, are they need a model too. And I think the zone to win. I haven't read it, but certainly uh, I think it's worthwhile. Uh, looking it at it,
1: it. It's what, what models are for Shimon, is to, to give people a vocabulary to talk about a challenge, a politically or emotionally or just economically challenging topic in a way that honors all sides of the argument. Mm-hmm. It's the opposite of our political spectrum right now. <laughs> if you want to be successful in business, you, you absolutely want to honor all points of view. And this is what diversity, this is a really important dimension of diversity. We, we, we think about gender diversity and we think about ethnic diversity, both of which are incredibly important, but so is intellectual diversity and being able to triangulate on a tough problem by looking at it in multiple sides. So what a framework's designed to do is to show you there are multiple legitimate points of view to bring to this problem, and you should not disempower or disenfranchise any of the points of view. At some point, you're going to make a bet. You're going to take an action, and, and that's fine, and you'll, you will take an action from a specific point of view. Good. But just understand that, that put that in context, and when you go to recruit the rest of the company, to back that bet, they have to understand we're, I'm backing a bet in somebody else's zone. They're not going to play by the rules that I play by because they're playing a different game. And I have to honor that. In fact, I have to support that. And that I think if you have the right vocabulary and framework, you go... Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I, I get it. It's a little bit like families. I, I've got a grandson. He's he's, he's six years old. He, he's got a set of rules. I can't give him the keys to the car. <laughs> I've got a great aunt who's potentially de- had dementia. I have to think about how to play that game. I have to honor that game. You know, just play the game. Yeah.
0: yeah. You've advised a lot of startup uh, founders, maybe you're a CEO at Whisperer, CMO Whisperer. What are some good stories uh, you can tell, success stories, and and maybe also a couple of stories where you felt like they should have never uh, even been at the chasm? They they didn't even have product market fit to start with.
1: It is interesting. So the (laughs) fun things, just classic things that happen. One thing that happens is you sit down with a team and you're doing you put out this chasm framework and you say okay so where do we think the category is and everybody's saying well, it's in the chasm and, and and the founders going it's in the tornado it's, no it's not it's when you're a believer and when you want it to be there and when you can see it in your mind and then you, it, it's so hard to listen to the universe and, but where are we where are we really and and, and the, what happens in large companies is they acquire these incredibly cool assets and the CEO typically sponsors the acquisition. And then he immediately puts it in the performance zone because he wants it to scale. And so no, you just put my six year old grandson behind a, a Mack truck wheel. I mean, yes, he likes trucks and he'd love to drive a truck. He's six years old. <laughs> Don't let him do it. And, and then, of course, crash and they burn. So I think, I think one lesson is just it's really important to let, a, let a innovation. Have its time in the early market, its time in what we call the niche market, so we call it the bowling alley, before you try to shove it into a tornado or into a large. So, so that's one thing. I think. I think that one thing is interesting is the number of people that, that misunderstand venture capital and misunderstand venture funding, and, and, and part of it is there's these radical disappointments. There are venture capitalists that are not good people. Let's understand there's some bad stories, but there's a fundamental misunderstanding about. What, how, what does the venture funding mean? And so there was a, f- a fellow at the Wildcat Ventures named Bruce Cleveland who wrote a book called The Traction Gap. And, and he and I collaborated on some parts of it, but the idea behind that was venture funding is designed to get you to the next milestone. And the next milestone is something that changes the value of your company dramatically. So if, you get, so if you're raising funding now, and I say, I mean, you're gonna get $2 million on a $8 million valuation, If you get to the next milestone with that $2 million, we're planning on raising maybe $6 million at $30 million valuation or $40 million valuation. And so the point is, but you gotta get to the milestone. If you only get 90% of the way, what happens is people go, good company, I'll put some money in, but not at the new valuation. I'll I'll put it in at the old valuation because you didn't get to the milestone. So that notion of milestone-based funding, and tying and, a and and milestone, not to just a check the box, hey, I released the product or blah, blah, blah. No, no. Did you achieve a new position of power in the world? Because you did get marquee customers. You did get your first crossing the chasm beachhead market. You, then, wow. And I think just thinking that way, and therefore when you get money as a startup, you got to realize if I need more money than what I just got, it's coming out of my ownership. And, 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 and so I better get to that next milestone.
0: No, a valid point, which kind of brings me to my next question, which is, if you were to make one prediction about the future, I'll sit down with you in five years, what do you think it might be? What do you think, let's narrow it down, about the future of work. How do you think that might turn out?
1: We're in the middle of a huge, sort of almost half a century-long transformation from an industrial model to a post-industrial model. And so if we, again, looking at it in context, because the jobs in an industrial model, they're location-specific. You go to work. You, they tend to organize around products, things, which you build in factories and then ship to stores and then sell through stores and maintain and whatever. And increasingly, in this more post-industrial digital services world, you don't necessarily go to work. You, we're not going to work this year, for example. But we're at work, but we didn't go to work. Many of the products are, are, are services. Are really not products. In fact, we're trying to consuming more of our products as services. So it's a whole generation of people that don't want to buy a car. They want to buy ride sharing. I'll do it that way. I don't need to, you know, own own a vacation home. I'll go to Airbnb. Those kinds of things. So at, at the large sense, and, and and if you go even higher than that, what it says is, in the industrial model, product was king, and the supply chain was where you spent all your time. Improving things in this post-industrial model, the customer is much more—it's the customer is king era—and and so now we're spending all our time focusing on the customer. Now let's think about what that's going to do to the future of work. If because in, in the old days the customer had to wait in line. Basically, we, we did our work, and you went to the wherever it was, you stood in line, filled out a form, and did whatever you were told to do, and that was it. Okay, in this new world, it's no. We have to court the customer, we have to continually improve customer experience. Is this whole thing, right? Customer success, not tech support, customer success. Well, think about the kind of jobs, how that changes jobs. So in the product model, I want a technical expert who knows the product. But in the services model, I want somebody who has more EQ than IQ, who gets the customer, who can pick up on signals, and and who can give them a better sales experience, a better support experience, better marketing experience, much more experience-oriented. Frankly, in terms of gender, it plays more to the female gender than the male gender, just like the other one played more to the male gender than the female. Obviously, it's not gender specific. We all can do both jobs. But if you look at what's gonna happen to the future of work, it's gonna be much more democratized, I think, across the gender spectrum. And I think we're going to see a lot more female leadership, which I think we, it's about, about time. Uh, so I think it'll be great. But I but I, think it's, I think it's going to be part just because this model plays to, to, to a different set
0: of strengths. You talked about customer experience, and that's quite near and dear to my heart. So if you took something like a CRM system and you added a, you know, AI chatbot to it, do you think AI is going to play into the future of work? Or do you think they'll still be Yeah,
1: yeah for sure. So I think, and, and this is what we've learned something about from Amazon. So when we tend to think about user experience, we tend to think about Apple and we tend to think about delighters. And by the way, I don't think anybody did delighters better than Apple. Amazon doesn't exactly do delighters. What Amazon did is it looked at all of the dissatisfiers, all the things that what we sometimes used to call hygiene factors. Mm-hmm. And it just said, what if we re-engineered the system to not have that? What if you you don't have to go to the store? We'll send it to you. You don't have to put in your charge cards. You're a Prime membership. We won't charge you. And so what, what that says is, when you look at the customer experience, there's two kinds of things. There's, can you give them a unique experience? And that I think plays to human beings. And I don't think that plays to AI. But can you take all the other stuff, maybe the context, not the core, and just take it away, just strip it away. AI is brilliant at that. Machine learning is brilliant at that. Now, right now, we're the, most people know machine learning largely from their advertising experience. We've abused machine learning in ad tech. It's just, it's just, it's abusive. And we need to stop because A, we're getting inured to it, immune to it. It doesn't work. It works, but it works like with a sledgehammer. Uh, and, and B, we're misunderstanding what machine learning can be. There's so much that's such a rich uh, a resource. So I, I think going back to your CRM example, giving the salesperson or the support person suggestions about next best action or next best thing to say, Thank God bless you. And and the reason we can do that is because of this incredible move, because we've moved to digital, everything digital has a log file. It's impossible to do anything digitally without creating a log file. We just used to have those log files. You throw them away after 30 days, right? Who, Who wanted them? Maybe for forensic analysis. Then the guys at Google said, no, we're going to do search. We're never going to throw away a search argument. I thought, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Where are you going to put all that stuff? They've solved that problem. And then the point is, when you have that much data and you expose it to algorithmic analysis through machine learning, the machine sees patterns that you would never see because they're just they're too vast as needles in haystacks. And so as a result, we're getting more predictive about things that used to, be, used to require either experience or intuition. And now machine learning is going, well, actually... No, you can use analytics if you have enough data. If you, have a, if you give yourself enough data over enough trials, we will find the patterns in, in, in the noise, and those patterns can then inform future behaviors and create better experiences.
0: Fascinating. And now for startups starting maybe starting out or maybe going towards the chasm, do you feel like our cancel culture and our social media Uh, usage will actually detract the mass majority? Do you feel like any of the the social impact will play a negative role in helping or hurting them?
1: Yeah, look, I I think social media is a classic herd phenomenon. I think that if you're going to be in a startup, we use this word entrepreneur, but we don't tend to think about what it really means because an entrepreneur is willing to go against the current and and, then they listen to the current. They're not stupid but they're willing to go against the current. That takes courage. And particularly if that current, part of that current, if your spouse is being influenced by the same thing, and you, then you're getting, well, what are you doing? And you're saying, I'm trying to be an entrepreneur. They're going, yeah, but we have kids and we got this bill that has to pay for. You can see all the anxiety. But I think what the entrepreneurial spirit says is, but I'm on a mission. I've, I've got to do this. And I think one of the things that helps is don't make it about you even if in some part of you it is about you, you've you got to make it about something that matters more than you do and, and put yourself in service to whatever that thing is because you're going to make sacrifices and you're going to make mistakes. And if you want to get back on course, you've got to continually say, okay, so where did I let my mission down? How do I redirect to get more on whatever it is I'm trying to do? And whatever I'm trying to do is not just get rich cash out and go live the life of a Simba. I need to get something done in the world. And and, and that really does help.
0: That's great. I see a lot of books on your bookshelf and you've written a few. So uh, can you give me a sense of the top three books uh, that have influenced you, top three books you liked?
1: Because I don't, although I write business books, I don't read business books very often. So what has influenced me? And by the way, I, I do have a book coming out next year which is the first book that's not about business at all. It's called The Infinite Staircase, and, and it's about you know a strategist's view. What does the universe teach us about life, ethics, and, and mortality? So it's a ph- philosophical book. Most of the books behind me tend to be more in that genre. I love reading about molecular biology. I, if, if I were to go back and take a different major in, in time, or if I were to be 20 years old right now, I find molecular biology fascinating. I used to read a lot in Darwinism and, and, and sort of those kinds of things. Some history, but and I still like liter- the, the literature. I, actually, okay, for those, this is completely, there's zero overlap between your audience and this next statement. What the heck? So Beowulf, which is the original Old English poem, is a new translation out that was done by a woman this last year that is basically a hip-hop style language. And I studied Beowulf as a, deeply as a scholar, it works, and not only does it work for our culture, you think that's probably exactly how the Anglo-Saxons experienced this poem, and all the ways we experienced in between were very, you know, senior and very uh, scholarly, and, you know, we studied this. Yes, <laughs> like, no, no, these are more like football players, people. Come on, <laughs> so <laughs> it's been fun.
0: I think, I think you may actually be uh, onto something. I feel like we need diversity, and we need people from liberal arts and other Uh, disciplines coming into Silicon Valley. And and maybe that's what we need. We need uh, more of a design thinking, interdisciplinary thinking, right?
1: Yeah, yes. So look, at the core of Silicon Valley, it's really funny, by the way, we say Silicon, there's almost no Silicon left in Silicon Valley. It's become all on top of the Silicon and all the software really did eat the world. But the point being, look, at the core of this industry is technological innovation. And, And if you really go down all the way down, it's, because the semiconductor industry continues to give us more compute capability for less money and less time, then really the job of the tech industry is how can I take that free resource, because basically it just, you just get more power for the same amount, and how can I use that and consume that in some uh, highly useful way in the world? At the far end, it means what, what applications will I apply it to, but in the near end, it's like What does quantum computing do differently from other computing? Or how does a semiconductor laser work different than a gas laser or whatever it is? So I think at the core, you still need the engineers. But as we move more toward the service economy, away from the industrial product model, more toward digital services, a lot of the value creation is working backward from the customer, not forward from the product. And that is a different, and that is not, you do not learn that in engineering classes. And you learn that in humanities classes. And so, yeah, I think we, as we're going to get more and more return on innovation, we've got to bring the technology from the left, but we've got to bring the user experience from the right. And I mean, I think that there's got to be a connection between the two.
0: If you were to characterize your superpower, what would it be? What do you think sets you apart? You've been, you're highly successful, looks like you've done so many different things. Is there one superpower you'd like to speak about?
1: I think there's two things that I think I rely on a great deal. Uh, one is outward dire- sense of direction. So, the, the thing about being in service to something, so I, but I, the reason I, I mentioned that first one is because I need to be in service to something that I believe in. And, and then when I'm doing that, I, cause I, otherwise I get caught up in my own ego way too much. So, that, that's number one. And the second thing, I think, think I, I, I really do think I'm good, I'm good at coming up with metaphors. And I do it all the time, uh, just all the time. And it's just how I think. And, and I, think that's, I think that does make my writing business books a little bit different maybe than other ones. I, I think if, if, you, if every book you ever read was good at metaphors, you'd shoot yourself. But as, as an ingredient in a larger meal, I think that's good.
0: Yeah, I have, I still remember your D-Day metaphor from your Crossing the Chasm book. That stuck in my head because it's all about storytelling and metaphors.
1: You know, I think that all problem solving starts with narratives. Eventually, you have to translate the solution into practical actions and action items and OKRs and stuff like that. But at the beginning, you tell a story about a possible future and you seek to get investment, whether that's monetary investment from an investor or your team to invest their energy with you or your boss to align with your project. But you do that by telling stories. Now, and the way we criticize those stories is, and actually what your boss or your investor is doing is going, do I believe Shalana's story? Do I, do I believe this story she's <laughs> told? And, 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 and if they say yes, they get excited. If they say no, they think, well, then they ask you a question. Wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. What about blah, 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 blah. But if you come back and say, no, Jeffrey, actually, here's how it works. You go, oh, maybe that story is a better story than I thought it was. And at some point, we buy into the story, and then we translate the story into a spreadsheet. So we we do come up with the metrics, and we count sales, and we count revenues, and we do all that stuff, but it's all analytics after the fact. Nobody got inspired by a spreadsheet, but they got measured by a spreadsheet, but they got inspired by PowerPoint.
0: That's so true, that is so true. And so if you were to provide guidance, advice to listeners of this podcast, and maybe we could start with women, because it looks like we need allies, women leaders need allies. Maybe we'll start with what, given that you advise a lot of VCs and, you know, startups, what would you like to change and what advice would you like to provide?
1: I really do think we need a a world which is much more balanced in terms of power. And by the way, I do a ton of work with Salesforce. I think Mark Benioff's been a good leader there. If you look at at the leadership team at Salesforce, it's more gender balance than, I've, than any other client I've ever worked with. And it's not just gender balance. It's the voice, the powerful voices. There's a very good balance between, in fact, I would argue right now, it's probably a stronger voice uh, from women than men moment. But, that, but that's great. About time, you know, isn't that, isn't that fabulous? So I think that's part of it. I think it's when, you are, when you're in a situation, though, where the, the social inertia still at the margin gives you the doubt of the benefit instead of the benefit of the doubt. And that's first. That's clearly how you wake up if you're Black in America. And to some degree, it's how you wake up if you're a female in business, certainly in tech business. And so it's, man, I have to get up every day and get the doubt of the benefit. I need a little bit more of the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> and, and when you start looking, again, so part of it's, you got to get back to who, who am I in service to, what am I in service to? Uh, maybe I'm just in service to making a living for my family and whatever, but you got to be you know what, what you're in service to and then protect that. And then if you're getting the, the, the doubt of the benefit, I think you've got to protect your emotional energy. You've got to be careful because you'll you, you just wear yourself out. I can remember t- as it, when I was teaching, you, I, I, you could get a kind of a student in your classroom that could exhaust you because they were never going to capitulate to success. They, they would always find a way to not succeed and they would, and they'd pull, you just felt yourself being torn. So I think there's an analogous things can happen in business where you're just, your energy gets sucked away from you. Man. And then, and, and the, I do say, it is interesting, but one last thing about Salesforce, it's a funny story, but Mark is a big supporter of mindfulness as a personal technique. And in fact at all the offsites, there are monks that come in and lead mindfulness sessions and everybody participates it's not like just the, a few the, the whole thing and it does change the quality of the environment so the, the reason i bring that up is i think we have to all have personal practices whatever they are that restore us because and and now in this age of zoom you can get feel your soul get sucked into the, <laughs> into, the into the zoom it's, it's no okay let me out so i think again just taking care of your energy I I think it's important. And then, as you said, building alliances. And I think we build alliances on integrity. I think we build alliances on making commitments and keeping them. And and so finding that core of people that that keeps their commitments to you and you keep your commitments to them, I think that's really important.
0: And any advice to just, in general, any takeaways for the listeners?
1: Well, I I think in terms of, particularly in terms of future work, this big topic, you know, I think there's anxiety in the culture and any time as a transition that there's a lot of jobs that are going to be uh, decimated, a lot of people are going to be dislocated, and the future of work is going to become, sort in the case of AI or machine learning, a, there's some terminator future that's going to take away all of the creativity of human beings. So I think, so first of all, understand, in the short term, there will be job dislocation, and it is very painful, and we should do everything we can as a society to mitigate those problems. But long-term work, one way to think of define work is all the problems that need to get solved. That's the body of work. So you ask yourself the question, is work going to diminish? How are we doing with the body of problems? Do we feel like the body of problems is getting smaller or larger? My experience is it's getting larger. And, And in fact, I just feel like there's an infinite set of problems in front of us. So there's an infinite amount of work. So I don't think we're going to run out of work we we, the the fit but product market fit between the work that needs to be done and the skills that we have okay we're going to have to adjust the product market fit but it's not that there's going to be a lack of work that's not going to be the problem i think that the thing is that we need to realign ourselves to perform the future of work which is different maybe than the past of work
0: so would you like to leave us with a quote a favorite quote that you like Oh,
1: gosh. Okay, if this is the first one that came to mind. And it, it, it relates to being innovative. It's an it's a proverb, it's an African proverb. And it says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with others. And I think it's just knowing which of those games to be playing at the right time. I think that's one of the keys to entrepreneurship.
0: Uh, Such a pleasure to talk to you, Jeffrey, and uh, look forward to reading your book, The Infinite Staircase. Does that come out next year?
1: I think it's going to come out next year, yes. The Infinite Staircase. Yes.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate
1: (laughs) it.